Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. We got a big episode. Today we're going to talk to Lars Ulrich of Metallica. But first, I'm going to talk to John Dolan, record reviews editor, about the album of the week, Frank Ocean. Hey, John. Hey, Nathan. So we've been listening to a lot of this record. It just came out a few days ago. Wait, I mean, there's actually two Frank Ocean records. There's a magazine. There's like pop-up shops. There may be lots of other things I don't even remember. He made us wait, and then he gave us quite a lot pretty quickly. This is a record that's a, as I'm sure everyone listening to a music podcast in 2016 is well aware, a record that everyone has been waiting for. It's called uh, Blonde. It's called Blonde. It was obviously Frank Ocean, kind of the most elusive and interesting and progressive artist in a very progressive moment for R&B. This was four years in the making after his album um channel orange which was the follow this is his second release but a breakthrough album that kind of established him as just this pathfinding artist and kind of a you know 21st century update in some ways on sort of stevie wonder and 70 soul but also in the post kanye uh vein and and it's super influential record you know definitely one of the best like soul records of the last decade he also made his name kind of singing along on tracks by jay-z uh and a lot of other people yeah and you know obviously the biggest news he made was in coming out as bi in a hip-hop r&b world at the time that was a major major thing and for people to kind of get behind that and get excited about that and um, he did it very publicly very publicly in a public tumbler, statement yeah. yeah um and you know that kind of gave this music which is often about kind of it's elusive music it feels like different modes of identity are being processed while you listen to it and that kind of helped that so people really waited for this for a long time and it finally sort of like uh, uh, last week he put up a video on his website uh, just of him building him stairs building in a warehouse just, in a warehouse yeah. is working in a workshop it was and actually a video album right yeah it was, it, endless and then yeah. he put then there was music um with these kind of fragmented kind of ambient tracks uh, and people were a little confused endless. at first. Right. It was like, is this the is album? This, the this is pretty out there. Right. Very, yeah. Just very atmospheric. Yeah. yeah. And then everyone was waiting for this record. The, the, the actual record was supposed to be called Boys Don't Cry, and there had been a lot of talk about this. And then he actually put out the next day a zine called Boys An Don't Cry. printed people publication. Wanted a yeah, <laughs> right. it's like, take notes. <laughs> Magazines um, are back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Please, go. <laughs> so people were lining up for Blocks and Block. There was one in London, one in New York, uh, one in L.A., and, and maybe one more place. But to get this magazine, and inside the magazine is a CD of this album called Blonde, which is the actual album. It's the album we've been waiting for for four years. And it's a complex, uh, amorphous, but gorgeous, um, kind of like amniotic listen that can really sort of transport you, but also confuse you. It it, it comes from different places. It, it takes from different elements. In the liner notes to it are the kind of credits to it, which are themselves also kind of vague. He thanks Beyonce. He thanks David Bowie. He thanks Brian Eno. He and thanks Kanye. Gang of Four. Gang of Four, that's yeah, right, the Gang right. of Four. You know, critique of capitalism. Um, and the music itself kind of reflects that. Um, I, one of the things it did, obviously, is build up this huge expectations, but it's not that kind of lemonade-type album where it explodes with kind of its grandiosity. It's, right, it's, where it's, like every track is this, oh my God, I'm right. listening I, to I, this I, important record. And I, yeah, I kind of listened to it a little bit the wrong way, where I was kind of, okay, well, give me, you know, but it's the, 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 the video should have been a clue. This is not just about the time it takes to make something good. It's also about the process of kind of 
being in between things. And, yeah. the, and the music is like that too. It's I mean, like the kind of journey through his moods and then the, the songs which have more like conventional hooks kind of creep up on you. It does. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's funny. It, it feels, as you listen to it more, it feels kind of shorter. It, like it feels more compact the more you listen to it. But, right. you know, the, 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 the which is a good sign because right. you're, you get more into it. Yeah. You know, the in between is obviously with his sexuality, but also just with the, the mood of the music. It has kind of a late summer, early autumn kind of just sense to it when you're listening to it. The metaphors are often like drug metaphors and often swimming pools come up often kind of like being in between states in your body being in between states in your mind like being late at night wondering what the next thing is one of the great so, lines in the song nike's is i'm not him but i'll mean something to you we'll let you guys prophesy we gonna see the future first living so the last night feels like a past life speaking of the don't work out in the people devil be possessor homies demons try to body jump why you think i'm in this bitch when the fucking yamaka there's all that kind of stuff it's like right. kind of like the, the very honest portrayal of the way we're not sure about relationships. Right, there's a lot of love, yeah, and ambiguity and kind of disappointment and complex feelings and, yeah. I mean, he's an R&B artist who seems in this record to draw from everything except, you know, it's it's a guitar record. There's there's one song, uh, Pretty Sweet, which sounds like if, like, Eddie Van Halen tried to do Robert Fripp's no pussyfooting. It's like, <laughs> there is a surprising amount of guitar, right? It's you know yeah. pretty watery guitar, almost closer to like what you'd hear in an indie pop record. And then if you think about, you know, he self-released it. He was on uh, Def Jam, right? Now he's not. He he put it out in a zine. I mean, he's taking from all these other parts of culture that don't have much to do. You know, R and B counts a lot on an intimacy and a familiarity with the with the intentions and the and even just the vocal presence of the artist. But on this record, especially the first song, especially on Nike's, he switches his voice up a ton. The whole record switches up his voice a, a, a ton, and you're not really sure which Frank Ocean you're going to get from song to song and which kind of sentiment you're going to get from song to song. So it's keeping you off guard while, you know, the music itself keeps pulling you back in, I guess. It's it's quite a record, and it's one of these records where... uh, Let's let's cover a couple more songs. Ivy is one song that I I thought was really... that kind of jumped out for me. If I could see the walls, I could see you faking. If you could see my thoughts, you would see your faces. Safe in my rent like an army truck. It's the second song, and it's a soft, you know, kind of relatively somber, kind of watery guitar track. The song that really, for me, I keep coming back, and the song that introduced itself to me as a, a song I know I'm going to be kind of like, that's telling me there's going to be more things here, was this pink and white. That's the way every day goes, every time we've no control. If the sky is pink and white, if the ground is black and yellow, it's the same way you showed me. It's kind of his version of Summer Time in the Living is Easy. It's just a beautiful kind of languid, gorgeous song about kind of like lazy days or whatever. It's it's quite lovely. Um, there's a lot of that. It's a record that makes you kind of come to it. Um, there are a couple of funny skits that actually, and I often hate kind of spoken word <laughs> interludes, uh, but these kind of just feel meaningful. There's a kind of a funny message from his mom on on his voicemail about don't take drugs in college, and there's kind of a funny story from a this uh, a French acquaintance <laughs> yeah. about Facebook, and then it ends with on a very sweet note with the, the song Godspeed. I will always love you. How I do. He's kind of singing to someone you don't really know who he is, kind of saying, I'll always be there for you, but you kind of get the feeling that he might be singing to himself. Very gospel. Yeah, no, the gospel yeah. thing is a big part of it, too, and, and the kind of meltiness of the ballads. And, and the singing, when it's just, you know, his voice is just 
continues to be striking and arresting. Like, you know, it's interesting, like, the, I, I kind of am already realizing that with, compared to Channel Orange, like, the, the reference there was definitely 70s soul and R&B at its kind of most, like, expansive. And here I felt like it really was, like, it, you know, along with the gospel, along with things, but a lot of sort of 70s kind of art rock. I mean, I think of like Berlin Bowie and maybe the ambient Eno. It was almost like if you made like an ambient Eno album that if like Another Green World was like somehow more ambient or something. It's like that stuff comes up in this as well. It, it, it has that feeling. It, it reminds you of music beyond the genre it's in and it kind of ends up being R&B in a pretty tangential sense. And this is going to be a record I'm sure we're going to be spending a lot more time with and it's going to reveal itself in different ways. I mean, that's the thing but, too. It's like we're talking about this a week after it came out and it's right. not that kind of record. I mean, right. it really is a spend time with it, go around with it, and see how it evolves as you listen to it kind of record. Well, I have a feeling we'll be coming back to it uh, in our year-end will, report, I'm sure. Certain, and yes. in, the, in the meantime, uh, John Dolan, thanks for coming on with uh, your first takes. Yeah, thank you, Nathan. All right. And that was a little bit of Hardwired, the new single from Metallica, who've been away for a long, long time. That's the first track from their upcoming album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, which is out in November. Uh, And Andy Green talked to Lars Ulrich. We had the first interview with a member of Metallica a few hours after they announced it. Andy, what can you tell me about this record? What do you know? Yeah, I mean, it's been eight years, and they've been talking about making a record for a long time. And it's finally done. I've just heard the one song, which is Hardwired. And it's very fast. It's very aggressive. It's very thrashy. It's sort of similar to the first few albums. It's like a Kill 'Em All type song, which actually inspired their new record. So the last thing they did do, they did do that Lou Reed record. Yeah, right, they did was, Lulu with Lou Reed, but that was like a Lou Reed record where they were the backing band. Right. And then the, the album before that was Death Magnetic. Magnetic, which was 2008. Right. That was with Rick Rubin. This is with his engineer as a producer. How did the how, how did the, the Metallica Nation receive Death Magnetic? They received it much better than Saint Anger. They hated right. Saint that, Anger. That was a divisive <laughs> record. Yeah, where uh, Death Magnetic was Rick Rubin trying to get him back to the master puppet sound and told him that you shouldn't be ashamed of your early work. Which is a meme with Rick Rubin, the producer. He often yeah, tells big artists, he, "You need to get you right. kind of." Be at peace with your earlier, yeah. greater albums. Right? Yeah, that, that was his Black Sabbath spiel also. You right. can go back to Paranoid. Hey, it works. Yeah. So anyway, so you got on the phone with Lars? Yeah, I at this point, they were still working on the album. Rob was still playing bass on a song that day. But this was the day that they rolled it all out. It was a big surprise. So nobody outside of their studio has even heard most of this album yet, besides Hardwired. Which really didn't throw us off because, yeah. frankly, just Lars Ulrich is just wonderful yeah. to talk to yeah. anytime. He's yeah. probably one of, one of our favorite rock yeah. interviews. Up there with Noel Gallagher. Maybe yeah. not quite full Gallagher level, pretty but close. like there pretty, are, pretty freaking awesome. There's almost no other band where you want the drummer to do the interview. I would normally push back against that, where they're saying, okay, it's just, it's just the drummer calling you. Ringo? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, Questlove? Questlove of the True. Roots? Yes. Yeah. Right, we, we're not going to go one. down this rabbit yeah. hole. Yeah. yeah. There are definitely others, but there's very few of them. No, but he's definitely, he could be the, yeah. the most loquacious drummer. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and he loves talking to the press, and he's so conversational. You know, you'd feel that he's not filtering all of his answers through, like, a media lens in his brain. He's just sort of talking to you. He really snookered you, I can yeah. tell. No, right? no, 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 I, I, I like talking to Lars. Why don't we just let Lars do the talking? Yeah. And so here's your conversation. 
It's been a little bit of a crazy day today. That's no problem. I am loving the new single. I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, and what's great is it's so it's so uncommercial. It's not something that you were clearly that you were caring much about Top 40 Radio, right? I mean, that wasn't on your mind, I would imagine. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> not on your mind. No, that was not on anybody's mind. Listen, I don't even, I mean, I don't even know anything about any of that stuff anymore. I mean, you find that, you know, increasingly, I think, as you, uh, you know, grow a little older and, and probably less caught up in the in the kind of competitive element of a lot of that stuff that you often are maybe in your 20s or whatever I, I, I don't even listen to the radio so mm-hmm. when you say you know top 40 and all that type of stuff I mean I, I don't even know where to start or I don't know what any of it means anymore it's such a a different time now you know mm-hmm. so we just made this record and then in the last two weeks we started trying to figure out what to do with it and uh, it's just like it's it's sort of like the wild west out there in terms of, of you know what do you actually do with new music in 2016 once you recorded it because it seems like everybody's got such a different kind of perception of that you know so I, we okay. just wrote a bunch of songs and um, decided that uh, uh, this song Hardwired would be a uh, fitting first taste of of, of of what's going on there, you know. Huh, so just to take a step back, can you tell me your goals going into this record? Did you want it to be different that, 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 than the last one, or similar in certain ways? Just like, just like, what were your goals on day um, You know, there, we realized as we got kind of well underway that there never really was, you know, on the last record, Death Magnetic, we sat down with Rick Rubin, and he was very sort of uh, um, encouraging and, and very, uh, there was a lot of, of talks about sort of what we should do and where it was going. Mm-hmm. And um, he was very sort of great at, at kind of sort of firing us up and, and and making us, you know, and talking to us about being kind of comfortable with, you know, maybe being inspired by our past and certain things like that. You know, this album... Um, you know, we met Greg Fiddleman, who, you know, has produced this next record mm-hmm. uh, with Rick. He was kind of Rick's engineer, and he was really the day-to-day. Uh, and he's basically been with us ever since, coming up on 10 years. He did the whole movie. He's done he did the Lou Reed project. He, he's done every, every single thing we've done the last 10 years. So when we sat down... Uh, and started getting this new album underway about a year ago, uh, there wasn't really like, um, there wasn't any sort of talks about what are we doing. We, we just sort of picked it up from, from I think, where we left off last time. And then um, it sort of started shaping itself as it went along. So there wasn't really like uh, an MO or, or or some sort of big thing about like, this is the direction, you know, we got to, you know, it, it just, we had when we when we sort of got back together again um, about a year and a half ago or started thinking about new new music um, I was given basically in Metallica every single thing that we do is recorded so when we're jamming here at our HQ in our studio when we're on the road when we're warming up when we're sound checking whatever we're doing we're always being recorded and um, so I was given an iPod uh, by our sort of house engineer Mike, and it had 
1,650 ID numbers on it. <laughs> um, so there were there were 1,650 ideas or riffs or jams, basically from when we left off uh, on Death Magnetic, you know, what six seven years ago or whatever. So there was a lot of stuff to sort of sit down, and, and I just started listening through it and started putting, you know check marks next to the stuff that stood out you know id 723 sounds really good uh that kind of stuff and then james and i sort of started just connecting all the dots uh like we usually do but there wasn't like a real big kind of mo kind of we got to do this so let's you know this side it was just let's figure out how you know how this stuff starts sounding when it's organically kind of put together and, and organically take shape in, in 2014 and 15, you know? How, did you think about using Rick Rubin again, or you decided to go in a different direction? Or? Um, yeah, I, I think the biggest the biggest thing really was that we felt that, listen, we loved working with Rick, and Rick's been a friend of mine for over 25 years, I think, uh, even more, coming up on 30 years. And, um, it, but the biggest thing was that we wanted to make this record at home. Mm-hmm. And we have our own setup here in, in San Francisco, you know, just north of the bridge in Marin, and have a full studio and our rehearsals and our websites and our fan clubs and, and you know, our social media and everything we do is all in one building. And, and you know, we... We spent 75% of the last record down in L.A., and, and I think we're at a point now where we don't feel that we necessarily need to sort of leave home or go somewhere to sort of be able to focus. We understand that making a record at home may slow it down, you know, X percent uh, from, you know, distractions quote unquote but we like those distractions and we like to be around our families and we like to sort of be in our home environment and and we felt that that being in 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 northern california would be better for us mentally Mm -hmm. and um you know i think with rick there was always kind of a an unspoken thing with rick that that you know if we're going to make a record with rick or work with rick that it would be in la so we never really uh talked about it to be honest with you and we had such a an awesome run going with uh with greg fiddleman that we just sort of picked up you know where we left off for the last couple you know we did a a deep purple tribute thing a couple of years ago and we did a rainbow something for Ronnie Dio a few years ago and obviously we did the Lou Reed record and everything that we've done since Death and Magnetic was done uh, here at home in, in Northern California so that's kind of where we continued So just walk me through a average day of working on this record <laughs> We James and I um, generally would drop our kids at school or kind of be involved in the school grind, as we call it up here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, we would meet down here at HQ uh, in the, at least as far as rock and roll is concerned, in the ungodly hour around 9 a.m. Uh-huh. And um, we would generally work till school pickup. Uh, and so we'd kind of do the 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. kind of grind. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, we spent a lot of time, you know, Making a Metallica record is sort of like a giant puzzle. It's, it's, you know, we had 
you know, all this material and all this stuff, and I sort of went through it first and picked out um, what I thought was the stuff that stood out. And then James and I would sit down. We sat down for maybe a couple of months um, and connected all those pieces together into songs. Mm-hmm. And then he took about a month or so and was working on some vocal ideas over those skeletons. And then Fiddleman showed up uh, about a year ago. And we started kind of, I think we had, uh, I don't know, around 18, uh, I think it was around 18 songs. And then we went through them and, and kind of fine, you know, fine-tooth combed it and all that. And um, whittled it down to what, 12 or 13. And then we started recording last summer. But, you know, Metallica's always got, you know, a thing that really separates us, at least from our, you know, younger us, and, and I think to a degree from a lot of other bands, is that we really do like to sort of keep mixing it up. So, you know, last summer we did Lollapalooza. Last summer we did Rock and Rio. Last summer we did uh, Reading and Leeds in England. Mm-hmm. We did a couple shows in Russia. You know, we're always sort of running off and playing somewhere. You know, I think we, we did Rock and Rio even down in uh, Brazil in September. So there's no one you say sort of like, what's the typical day? It's not like we sort of go in for three months and have six days a week, you know, that are the same, and then the record's done. We we do like a month or two, and then we go play some shows, and then we take a couple weeks off, and then we, you know, do another month or two. So we really like to mix it up. But generally, at least here in the studio, the... Uh, the day has a tendency to be sort of uh, uh, we're primarily here during uh, school hours mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, the rest of the time we're sort of hanging with the kids and the family and, and doing all that domestic stuff and I'm sure I'm sure leaving for tours you would come back and be very energized after playing live like well that. it's always inspiring yeah right. and you know you gotta understand that these tours we do I mean we have a in our band we have a what we try to adhere to which is a two week rule which mm-hmm. is that we don't we don't tour or go on the road for longer than we do everything sort of in, in two-week increments. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go away for, you know, 10 days or two weeks or whatever, and you play four or five or six shows or whatever, and you just get totally inspired and, and, and reinvigorated and, and energized and come home and bring some of that kind of uh, rambunctious energy into the studio. And, and, you know, the great thing about the way we do it is we never get... Um, we never get sort of uh, caught in the same same rut or whatever, like over and over. We, you know, we're, we'll work for a few weeks in the studio and then, like I said, go play a couple shows or, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. So it, it's always mixed up. So we always feel that we, we never get a chance to uh, sort of, you know, burn ourselves out on one huh. particular thing. So how soon into the process did you realize you had a double album on your hands? Um, that was actually really late because, uh, we sat down, we didn't really sit down and try to figure out what we're going to do with all these songs. Um, I think the first kind of talk about that was in June. Mm -hmm. So we had, um, I don't know, I think we recorded 14, 13, 13 songs. Um, and we sat down and we listened to them and we invited, um, so Peter and Cliff uh, and Mark and Tony, sort of the people that are part of our inner circle, and they, we all sat down and listened to all this stuff, uh, 
sort of for about a day or two, and we came to the conclusion that we felt that um, basically, like last on the Death Magnetic album, we felt that there were some A songs and some B songs, and we decided not to release the B songs, and we put them out later as some sort of like bonus stuff about a year later. But we we thought that there was no real A or B songs, that all these songs were sort of fairly even in, in how we perceived them. So we figured that um, since we didn't feel that there were any duds in there, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> in true narcissistic form, uh, we thought that we would just put out the whole shebang. And then that clocked in at uh, almost 80 minutes, and then we thought it'd be cool to kind of split it up into uh, two CDs and, and just kind of do more of a, of a kind of a, an A and a B type of thing or just, you know, with a vinyl and all that type of stuff. Right. So You know, uh, I've just heard the single, but it was it was pretty fast and, like, pretty thrashy. Is that consistent through the album? Is that the, is that the vibe of it? Um, yeah, it's, it's probably, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty indicative of... of of, of what's going on there. Some of the other songs that are a little bit longer, kind of more, some of the old school stuff, I guess we were doing on, you know, Lightning and Puppets and and some of that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, but it's, it's pretty indicative of, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty... Honestly, I, I don't have any perspective yet. There, I just, we finished up rehearsing. You know, we have a show this weekend in Minneapolis, and we finished up rehearsing, and, and we have, I think, one song left to mix, and I just walked by the control room, and Rob was redoing a bass line in the verses because uh, it felt like the bass line could be better. So, oh, wow. I mean, the record's not even done yet. You know, it, it's it's so... I, I don't have any kind of distance to it in terms of let me tell you you know um it's kind of like this or andy it's kind of like that or whatever i mean it's it's definitely um i I would say one thing that death magnetic i felt was a a pretty progressive had lots of starts and stops and lots of kind of um sort of jerky progressive stuff that rick encouraged us to do some some uh, he used the word ridiculous he would say like make it more ridiculous mm-hmm. that was a, a favorite saying of his and, and we tried to sort of like fuck it up and make it as you know sideways and as weird as possible in certain spots this record's probably a little more linear mm-hmm. um probably a little punkier in places and a little um just you know maybe slightly less progressive mm-hmm. um I think uh, maybe slightly more about moods and grooves and kind of drumming is maybe a bit simpler. And it's about sort of the riffs kind of really speaking um, and and that it's a little more uh, sort of maybe groove-oriented. But some of the songs are also a bit longer. I mean, there's definitely um, a few songs that hit the, the six to seven-minute mark and so on. So this new song... Hardwired is sort of one side of it, but it's all pretty, pretty uppity. Uh, the one thing there's not is sort of the big Metallica ballady kind of. Well, I don't know if I should give all this away, but since you're asking, there's there's not sort of you know two three rock ballads or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's pretty. Uh, 
it's pretty uppity stuff, most of it. Yeah, and the titles, they look pretty intense. A song like Spit Out the Bone or like Murder One or Am I Sad? Yeah, this is, uh, this, is, uh, this is all pretty dark stuff. I, um, you know, on, on this record, James was a little bit more in his own headspace. Mm-hmm. Those, each record's kind of different. Some records are a little more collaborative on things like subjects or or whatever. This one, James was a little bit more in his headspace and de- his own headspace and death magnetic. And um, uh, it's pretty dark most of it. There's a there's a lot of uh, pretty bleak, dark uh, stuff about sort of you know self discovery and sort of relationships not just with other people but with you know the different personalities that are hidden within and, and stuff like that I I haven't I haven't actually sat down with a whole batch of songs yet and it, there was some early artwork stuff that came in uh, two three days ago I started glancing at some of the lyrics just sort of seeing them all together do you know what I mean but definitely uh the, the the song titles and that's just come together also in the last week as we've sat down to try yeah. to sort of take out the best things and, and I'm seeing now because so much of that stuff when you do it is very instinctive mm-hmm. and so it's it's not really until a little bit later in the process that you start getting some um, some perspective but um, it's pretty bleak uh, from the uh Twisted Mind of James Hetfield, yes. There's uh, definitely some, some pretty in-depth stuff there. It's the first record on your own label off of a major. Did that change anything? Um, that's a good question. Uh, no, I, I mean, we've always been pretty autonomous and kind of hovering in our own world. Uh, I'd say... I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, it... it uh, obviously it's a little more daunting when you have to figure out what to do with it um, you know I would say you know when we put out Death Magnetic in 2008 you know there was still the remnants of a music business right. <laughs> and there was still a, a sort of you know remnants of, of 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 a process of how you were expected to do it do you mm-hmm. know what I mean uh, to release records all that's obviously completely gone out the the window now, and now it's it's anybody's guess what works and what doesn't. And I think ultimately you have to kind of look within just to figure out what it what works for you. How do you where do you see yourself in all this, and how do you want to share the music with with the people that are interested in, in hearing it? And so, you know, I've come to the conclusion over the summer as we started looking at some of the stuff in the last six weeks that. You know, releasing a record is is as much of a creative process as making one, and and there's so many different ways to do it. And it just used to be, you know, back in the day, 20 years ago, like okay, the record was done, and we were always our managers were always great at keeping the record company and all the business stuff kind of outside of the studio and we were very autonomous and left alone and not expected to sort of play the game or, or do any of that nonsense but there was still when the record was done you gave it to somebody and then there was there was like this process that fell into place you know mm-hmm. now it's like you gotta fucking sit here and literally reinvent the wheel 
what do you want to do with it? How do you want to get it out there? What, what does it all mean? And it's been uh, an interesting, you know, six weeks. But you know, obviously, when when you are your own record label, we've made some. There's been some internal shiftings. Uh, you know, we've gotten more people to come out here and be in our HQ, and we're we're sort of operating more of of what we do out of Northern California than out of L.A. or out of New York. So I think Metallica is becoming even more so, uh, just continue to be more and more of an autonomous operation. And, um, you know, it's obviously super cool to not have any outside elements potentially polluting your process at the same time. There are also times where it's a little daunting. You kind of have occasionally like a holy fuck moment, like, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> We're steering the ship, you know, one of those. You know. Now, did you ever think about a, about putting it out as a surprise or something, which is so common these days, or some sort of thing like that? Um, yeah, I think we did a pretty good job of keeping at least what happened today a surprise. Yeah. Uh, so, I think you know, we sort of, you have to remember, and this is part of what we not struggle with, but, you know, we sort of, you know, we live in San Francisco, and you're not going to find a more progressive group of people than the people within 50 miles of where I'm talking to you on the phone. Mm-hmm. And so everything here is totally, you know, what's the latest thing we can do? What's How do we fuck shit up the most? But at the same time, you know, Metallica sells an awful lot of records and has an awful lot of fans in a lot of places around the world that still has a very traditional way of, of, of getting music and for every, you know, let's sit and reinvent the wheel as much as we can. There's, you know, 50,000 people in Croatia or Portugal or, you know, Ecuador or Venezuela or some other place that sort of just go down to the store and buy a Metallica CD when it shows up, you know? Right. So you got to kind of find the right balances, you know, in terms of, you know, the new song is up on Spotify today where it should be. The new song is up on iTunes today where it should be. The new song is up on our website where it should be. It's on YouTube where it should be. But at the same time, there's a little bit more of a, of a traditional thing that happens in, in a lot of the rest of the world. And, and so we figured you know, that by the time it got to it, you know, we would still, you know, do a little bit of promotion and talk about the forthcoming record. And we've got a few other things happening in October and then the record comes in November. So there'll be at least what we feel for us is a nice balance between kind of new and progressive and still keeping one foot in in ways that a lot of the rest of the world communicate. So you haven't played a proper tour of American arenas in a few years. That we have not. Will you launch one in support of this? Uh, We're just figuring all that out right now. Um, We have some scattered kind of one-offs and a bunch of stuff happening um, for the rest of the year. And then... um, we're going to sit down, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks and sort of, I mean, I mean, yes, we're going to start doing some pretty next level tour, at least what's next level for us mm-hmm. uh, compared to how other people do it. We, we still, we're, we've told our, our people that we're going to stick to our two-week pods, which is what we prefer, but we'll be playing, you know, we did you know, 180 shows on the Death Magnetic Tour in two-week pods over three years, and that's what works for us. But we're going to start uh, pretty much uh, full-on touring 
in January and are looking uh, to figure out what we're going to do in America, but there'll definitely be some very extensive um, touring in America, and, and obviously um, we've done some festivals, you know, that, like I said, Lollapalooza and the Rock yeah. and Reels and all that stuff, but it's time to... Uh, come back and do some proper penetration of the of, of America. I am sure the set list is going to feature lots of songs off the new album. I sure hope so. And mm-hmm. Since I'm the one that writes the set list, uh, I'll make sure and put lots of new ones in there. It, no, it's, I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, in all seriousness, we're, we're itching to, uh, to play, you know, in rehearsals for the show in Minneapolis, uh, where we're, you know, opening the Viking Stadium this Saturday. We've been, uh, every day when we get in there, we're just playing the new songs, and then it's like, okay, uh, wait, now we got to play Master Puppets. <laughs> and then we kind of stumble our way through that. But uh, the new stuff's super fun to play. And um, it's, it's, you know, we're, you know, I, I it's probably... It's probably you're you're basically the first interview I've done mm-hmm. <laughs> about any of this stuff. So I, I don't even like I don't have like I said any perspective on any of this. It the new material is probably not as um, some of the stuff on Death Magnetic was pretty heady or cerebral or you had to like really think about like what the next crazy part was that was coming up. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff uh, of of the new record uh, the, the new songs are. They're a little more physical, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to play. There's also some of these songs are a little bit shorter than um, than Death Magnetic, so I think it's going to be um, it's going to be a lot of fun to throw uh, many of these songs in. And and when we play arenas or when we do full on tours, we we love we change the set list every night. We we haven't played the same set list uh, in over ten years, so we change the set list every night. And there's a uh, lots of new songs that we're going to have a lot of fun with so we look forward to that yeah I was just looking at your set li- at your set list stats and you just played Master of Puppets it was the 1,500th time <laughs> okay yikes <laughs> okay well that just aged us right there yeah no that's it's fine I mean it's yeah. uh, you know it, when you're you've been in the game for this long yeah. you know we're we're not down there to remember how Master Puppets goes. We're down there to um, get the blood flowing and get the the limbs and the joints and all that stuff kind of lubed up and 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 you know just you know it's just the physical element of it. It's it's like you gotta just kind of get the body limbered up again and, and get ready for the punishment yeah. that these shows are. You know, and what's great is you guys still is you guys still strongly believe in the album that as an art form. I speak to some veteran bands. They're like, oh, I'm done making records. Nobody cares. Like, why bother? I was going to tour. You know, no, but that's not no, your belief at all. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, no. I mean, listen, you know, I understand that there may be some cynics out there. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, make records, you know, it's been eight years or whatever. But, yeah. I mean, if you just, I can tell you, and I know, because I've been there for every moment, I can tell you that we're busier and more enveloped in Metallica than we ever have been. Metallica is is more of a of a full time thing than it's ever been. You know, because back in the day we used to we used to have these different kind of uh, 
I guess dynamics or patterns. You know, we would we'd write a record, we'd record a record, we'd tour the record, and then we'd like disappear for a year. Mm-hmm. But we don't disappear anymore. You know, we we're always there's always a festival. Hey, come play here. Come do this. How about that? How about you know record store day? Let's do some reissues. There, you know, there's always there's you got one foot in the future and one foot in the past. You know, and there's always this kind of interesting push and pull between kind of wanting to run amok into the future and discover the new paths and new ways and at the same time sort of being respectful to your past and understanding that the past also has a fairly significant meaning because we spent the better part of the first I don't know 25 30 years almost turning our back on our past because we were so we were so fearful of repetition mm-hmm. or of or, 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 or sort of somehow repeating anything we'd done before. And then one of the most significant things was when Rick sat down and said, it's okay. You can, you can, you know, it, be, be happy about your past, be proud of your past. You can embrace your past for inspiration. You don't have to turn your back on the, on your past, you know? And so now it's like, this kind of interesting dichotomy. I mean, it was pretty surreal, like this spring sitting and digging through the vaults and doing the ride, the lightning and the kill them all and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, sitting there trying to remember what happened 30 years ago at the same time as we were recording new songs and looking, you know, into the future, you know? So there's this kind of interesting push and pull, but no, fuck, I... I hope we keep making records till the day we fall over. I, I mean that that's what um, I think certainly inspires you, and that's what uh, gives you a sense of relevance, yeah. and gives you a sense of kind of still being in the game or whatever. And I think that's important, at least to us. I certainly respect if other, you know, uh, the, the peers of ours feel different, but for us, uh, writing songs and and feeling that that we're still. Um, we got something to say is is a I think it's an important part of just feeling vital and feeling confident and feeling good about yourself, you know. Huh, I guess finally, do you see yourself still doing this at age sixty five and then even seventy or something like, like the Stones? Yeah, you know what? I mean I like I've said a lot in the last few years, I mean the the only unknown is the physical element of it. I mean it huh. it, it if the if the arms and legs and knees and shoulders and throats and all that stuff, if all that, the backs and, the, you know, if, if all that, the necks, if, if all that stays intact, there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to do this for, for quite a significant amount of time. I mean, it, it you know, the one thing, obviously, and I love the Rolling Stones more than anybody else on this planet, but... You know, or, or some other comparable artist to that, but you know, you know, obviously, what we do, some people could argue, I'd like to argue, is maybe slightly more physically demanding. Yes. In terms of the energy and the weight that that goes into it, and so, you know, like I've said before, the the unknown is is whether our bodies can sustain it, and also the second part of that is kind of whether. There's a point where if you're playing a song like Battery or Master Puppets or one or some of these songs that have this kind of insane physical energy and demand, whether there's a point where if you can't play it at, I guess, the, 
at, at the physical demand that it, it deserves, you know, whether it's better to not play it than to play it half-assed, or do you know what I mean? Sure. That's the part. That's the only unknown, I think, mentally. Um, mentally, we could do this for another 100 years. It's just about whether the bodies can keep up. And that's it for today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on the iTunes Store or wherever you get your podcasts. 